353 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views that we're expressing here do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, our pets, or maybe even ours three weeks from today. Uh, today, I'm going to be interviewing, this will be fun, Elliot Higgins, who's the founder and executive director of the investigative collective Bellingcat and the author of a new book called, not surprisingly, We Are Bellingcat. Uh, that'll be fun, but first we're going to get to the news roundup. We've got uh, Dave Itell, information security specialist and founder of the Itell Foundation. Good to have you, Dave. Thank you for having me. Okay. And Nate Jones, co-founder of Culprit Partners, formerly with Justice and the NSC. Nate, good to have you back. Thank you, Stuart. Good to be here. And uh, Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute and the hardest working man in national security. Uh, Jamil, good to have you. Thanks, Stuart. Glad to be here. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. Uh, Why don't we jump in. Let's talk a little bit uh, about the latest developments in the exchange hack. This is the Chinese attack on Microsoft Exchange. A little bit of news. Dave, what's what's the latest? Well, I guess what's the latest, I think, is pretty important in the sense of I've always felt that we make our analysis on some of these issues way before all the data is really in on the issue. And especially with something where there's so much at stake, you know, especially for Microsoft and Microsoft's customers who unfortunately uh, are still running Exchange. Mm -hmm. But it's very possible that everything that could possibly go wrong here went wrong, right? So it's certainly possible that someone else found this Exchange vulnerability even before Orange Tsai of, of the original company that found it. There are two or three people kind of saying either I saw it in the wild or I found it. Yes. So there's, yeah. So it's weird because you'll see this on Twitter, right? Like, so I posted, what would you do if you had the O-Day before it was patched? And like someone just responded, oh yeah, I did have this way before it was patched, right? So these are all reputable people. Mm -hmm. So that's a possibility that there's many sources of the information that people are now trying to figure out how did the various APTs, as we call them, or just Chinese hacking groups, as is more apt in this particular case, like how did they get all of this information? And so the timeline is getting more and more confusing as time goes on. And I would love to point out to everybody analyzing this that so much of it has the word possible in front of it, right? So. <laughs> Right. So people are like, possibly in November, we saw the first exploitation of it, which is before Cheng Dai Tsai or Orange Tsai even found it. Right. So possibly in November, somebody had it. Also, possibly this Hafnium group, which is what Microsoft names them, was operating from November through January. Right. And then we know that like Hafnium and three other Chinese groups or potentially Chinese groups were operating from January through March 2nd, which is when the patch came out. So there's a lot of, there's a cloud of, of uncertainty, but what we do know is that a lot of people were doing it before the patch came out. Some of those people, it looks like did have the proof of concept that Orange Sai originally created because he uses the word orange in his web shell in the final stage of the exploit. 
Which is so, sort of like uh, basically putting his stamp on it so you can see it reused. And also, it's just like, I won't say it a tradition, but it's like the lazy thing to do, right? What's right. your password? My password's Dave, right? right? So like, it's just, it's what you do sometimes when you're building some of these tools very quickly. There's been a report that someone used the exploit on January 3rd, which is like one or two days before he even gave it to Microsoft. So a lot of this stuff is very possible. We don't know which of the many bad things happened. And my guess is honestly that a lot of the bad things happened. And so untangling what the possible action that Microsoft and governments should take is very difficult because Microsoft has something like 80 partners in its program where, that it gives proof of concepts and patches first to for testing. That program has value to Microsoft and to those companies and potentially to the wider public uh, that is getting protected. Some of those companies probably leak. We know that they leak. There's about 10 Chinese companies that are part of it. Uh, and the timing does suggest that at least the release to those people alerted the, the hackers to the fact that they weren't gonna be able to sneak in much longer. That's like the minimum viable problem, right? Like. Like we know that the information flowed to those companies and then likely the general community in China was made aware that this was gonna disappear pretty soon. But it's like, we don't know how much more happened than that, right? right. And, and we also don't know if the Chinese, if it was the Chinese companies, it could have been yep. that an American company has been hacked, that information is floating around the American company and the Chinese intelligence is getting it from there and putting it into their offensive team. It could have nothing to do with the Chinese companies. So we don't, at this point, have the information we need to recommend any kind of policy, except that when you see people do it, it's because they want that policy regardless of the facts on the ground. Right. That's so my is, personal opinion. Is there value, is there, it looks to me as though there'd be a justification in the FBI actually serving subpoenas on those 80 companies so that instead of Microsoft saying, we'd like your co voluntary cooperation, there is something backing it up? I don't know that the FBI has as big a place here. As, I would fear the Microsoft lawyers more in this <laughs> <Fair> case. <enough. laughs> and I would say that like, there's the, the other meta-level problem of do we as a nation or as a society, as a global society, have the tools we need to take care of these sorts of problems? So when we see that a vulnerability is being exploited this widely, it does make sense to have a legal and technological framework in place that we can exploit it first to fix the issue ahead of whoever's installing ransomware or just exploiting it for security issues. So I want to hold that because we're going to talk a lot about various proposals for what do we do about this. Uh, I do want to get out the the other supply chain attack that, that we've heard about in the last uh, week to 10 days, which is the idea of dependency confusion, or as I like to say, dependency collision. Uh, Jamil, uh, can you give us a sense of what that is and whether we should really be worried about it? Sure. So, you know, Stuart, a lot of a 
lot of developers, as they're creating software, rely on software code that's publicly available, right? Or is downloadable and pieces, these are piece parts. They're essentially the Lego blocks of software building in the modern era, right? And what we saw back in the now solar storm or sunburst, whatever you want to call the hack involving the SolarWinds Corporation in part, but a number of other companies, in the case of SolarWinds involved, getting into their software build cycle, inserting first innocuous code and then later on malicious code that was then picked up in the software update cycle. What we're seeing here now is an effort to go into the dependencies, right? Some of these pieces, the building box, the Lego pieces that build this larger piece of software and doing something similar, right? And again, these were security researchers going in and attempting to, to demonstrate that this was a valid potential threat vector. We have seen some bad actors potentially exploit this capability or this access point. Remember, part of the, the discussion about open source software is, look, the reason why it's, it's so particularly safe is everyone's always looking at it, right? It's constantly being vetted. One of the challenges is, though, as, co as code is being committed regularly, right, and companies rely on these piece parts, you're not necessarily, as you're building on top of your Lego structure, you're not necessarily checking the Lego bricks down here as they're being updated to make sure that the updates are valid and that they're credible. And so, you know, in, in some ways, this is a new, it's a new variant of a traditional challenge, right? People talk a lot about supply chain attacks, right? But supply chain attacks have been around since the day of the Trojan horse. That was a supply chain attack, right? And so this is not new, but, you know, it's something people are less aware of and, and need to be on point about. The trick is that that they the, the would-be hacker guesses the name that you've given to the your internal library and then posts one that is sort of trumps your internal library because there's usually a preference for public code over private code to, or they you pick a version number that is higher than yours and then when somebody runs it and they need to find the right library the thing it does is say well is there a public version of this and it goes and looks and he has posted buggered code uh, uh, with that name. And I, I, thinking about this, there's only a few places that people post this code. Why couldn't you just say, give your stuff that says uh, a name that says, this is Microsoft code and if it's in a public depository, it should not be used version 1758. And then the, the, the repository can say, no, we're not gonna let you put, post that. We're just gonna take it down. Dave, is it that easy? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Dave, Dave's thoughts on this, but I mean, you know, from, from my understanding, right, part of this is less about sort of the naming convention and more about the fact that people rely on other pieces of software that are out there that are constantly being updated by the open source community, right? I mean, so in part, it's a naming convention issue. And if you're using, look, if you're using sort of commercial code, right, sign code, right, you want to be sure it's accurately signed. And in that case, right, there may be a problem with the certificate. We saw that was a way, a, a method of exploitation used with respect to Microsoft Active Directory when they sold the Mimecast certificate as part of the Sunburst Solar Storm attack. You can imagine similar code signing issues, right, associated with supply chain attacks, but also, right, it, there's also this reliance on open source, right, pieces of code that simply have code being committed constantly by the community, right? I mean, Dave, am I right about this? I mean, you're both, you're right. It's, annoyingly this is one of those issues where like the deeper you look at it the thornier the problem gets and so i think one of the big companies who actually was really involved in this was microsoft they were looking at this and they're they like yeah we, we import a lot of things and i don't think there's a clear answer to how you solve these which is why we're starting to see everyone all this all over exploiting this issue and one of the ones i saw recently was actually a go package that was sending data back to china as sort of a ping to make sure that they could, you could you can see people starting to exploit this for real. Let's mm -hmm. put it that way. So, and we're going from 
announcement of a vulnerability to like two weeks later, an, op an operations concept is being tested. And you can see another two weeks from now, we have operationalized that. And it's, it's sort of like the tidal waves just keep coming in on this stuff. Yep. Yeah. It's, and it's not going to go away. Yeah, you know, sure. One answer might be, well, maybe I just want to update my code, right? But of course, that was half the problem in the solar, yeah. the alleged Solar Winds Act, right? I mean, right. Part of the thing is, eighteen thousand were affected of thirty of their thirty thousand whatever customers, but that means twelve thousand weren't taking the update nine times out of ten, which is actually a positive update that you want to take to get your security things in place, right? So I'm not sure that the answer, which is, well, we just won't take the updates, we won't update our won't update our, our code libraries, right, our repositories, right? I'm not sure that's the right answer either, right? The question's got to be, how do you clean up these core, these code repos and make them reliable? You know, in part, Microsoft's answer has been, well, just rely on our signed code, rely on our a on AD. Well, not sure that's the case given, you know, but see, Mindcast. So I, luckily, I, I, this problem is going to be solved by the Biden administration's new cyber strategy. Nate, there was an article in Lawfare about the Biden administration cyber strategy that compared it to the Trump cyber strategy, which you could have compared to two other earlier administrations. And there was almost no difference. Does that tell us that the problems that weren't solved under Obama and Trump are not going to get solved under under Biden? That's a very pessimistic way of looking it at may. it. I hope not. Um, <laughs> Maybe accurate, though. I think the commonalities due to a few things, frankly. One is the high level of generality of these statements. They don't really tell you much, quite frankly. The second is, you know, the, the point in time we're looking at this, it's so early in the Biden administration, they themselves kind of said this is a, a bit of a placeholder and will be followed by uh, a clearer articulation of their national security strategy. The third one is that, you know, President Trump himself at a high level, I think, took a pretty hands-off approach to a lot of these things, quite frankly. And so what you saw come through in his strategy is a lot of times what the career experts thought the right thing to do was. It was one of those things that in many respects wasn't terribly politicized. And I think you're going to see a lot of that in the Biden administration as well for slightly different reasons. And so you will see at this high level of generality, a lot of commonality. I do think, you know, once you dig into it, you will see a number of important differences emerge. And I'm happy to talk about where I think those things will be. But yeah, I do. I want to I do want to talk about that. But it, 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 I, I guess I do have the observation that, you know, a lot of the best things Trump did were stuff he didn't he didn't pay attention to. Yeah, uh, not surprisingly, in some ways. Uh, but in this area, um, not paying too much attention, which Trump did and Biden probably will do, is a recipe for not doing much more than we're doing now. And so I do worry that, you know, if you want to, if you want to change your direction, it has to come from the top. The president has to say, this is not working, Jack. I, you you got to give me something else. And if he doesn't do it, then the political and interagency processes that have produced three generations of crappy strategy will produce a fourth. Yeah. And I think, you know, whether this would have happened without solar winds and some of these other things you guys were just talking about is a valid question to debate. But I think the reality is those things did happen. And as a result, I think you are likely to see more of a focus, not just from President Biden, but from Congress as well. You're already seeing Congress put a lot of pressure on them and on the private sector to do better in this space. And so what I think, you know, when they start digging into it, what I think you're going to see emerge is 
some legitimate differences, not dramatic differences, but, you know, differences in approach, differences in style around, you know, more focus on internationalizing solutions, more willingness, at least at the top, to confront Russia in particular, more emphasis on investing in rebuilding our own capabilities and investing in maintaining our competitive edge in emerging technologies. And I think you'll see more coordination at the NSC of operations and less delegation to individual departments and agencies. And you can debate whether that's a good thing. But that's a difference we've seen already, right? Didn't they already decide to move the decision making from some of the like command groups all the way up to the NSC? Yes. It's not quite Obama level, but it is, it's not the laissez-faire, hands-off, I don't care about this, let me go back to tweeting a view that the Trump administration took. Well, actually, let's move to what we should be doing, because we had two really interesting proposals about this. Jim Lewis gave a, a talk, I think, to the Cyber Command about a more coercive cyber strategy. And Dmitry Alperovitch had an article in which he talked about how we should be responding to solar winds and the exchange hacks. And they were, I think it's fair to say, both suggesting we need to be tougher, but there were a lot of nuances to those. And Nate, why don't you lay out what you think Dimitri and Jim were saying, and we'll let you and Dave chew over whether they made sense. Sure. So so I think they're actually important to kind of read together, and, and they're complementary of each other in a lot of ways. You know, I think Dimitri was largely saying, you know, there's this natural reaction all the time to just respond to every cyber incident, every attack from a national adversary. And what we haven't done is actually draw lines in the sand and communicate to people what lines they shall not cross and what lines, um, when crossed, will will merit a response from us. And that's, I think, an important first step that that Jim Lewis, frankly, skips over a little bit. And you know, I think he a little bit falls into this trap of everything deserves some kind of response. And, you know, his argument is, you know, correct in a lot of ways, although I'll take some issues with it when we get into the discussion. But, you know, he points out rightly that at this point, you know, the U.S. is very much on its back foot here and our adversaries on are on their front foot and we've become an easy target for them. And and he's advocating for a much more aggressive and assertive and coercive cyber strategy that you know in the you know to to borrow a phrase from Trump's you know exit of the Iran deal and and the assassination of Soleimani to essentially reestablish deterrence even though he doesn't really call it that and takes issue with deterrence you know trying to find ways to essentially change our adversary's calculation of costs and benefits to to deter them from taking some of these actions against yeah, them. Yeah, he spends, he's much more kind of a political diplomatic theory about it. And he dislikes talking about deterrence because he thinks it's importing the nuclear model, which is kind of completely un, uh, persuasive in this context. And he really basically says, hey, we are in a conflict. We are in a fight. We need to fight and we should stop whining about it and just do it. Uh, uh, Dave, I uh, uh, 
how did you feel about Jim's suggestion, which is, I think, basically, he says we should be doing more to degrade the cyber attack capabilities of our adversaries much more directly. And, and at least with Dimitri, I thought he was saying we need to respond to SolarWinds and, and the exchange hack. But the exchange hack was so much worse in terms of being irresponsible that we should make China pay a lot more than Russia for those for these hacks. I think one thing that I've really enjoyed about Dimitri's posts is that he wants to avoid being very counterproductive in what we're defining as the norms of responsible cyber offense. And so if you look at solar winds, it is very hard to say that they have been irresponsible with the way they conducted the operation. Right. We, we can resent the fact that it succeeded and we're entitled to respond to that, but we should draw a distinction between intelligence gathering we don't like, but which didn't do a lot of harm and intelligence gathering that is just crazy irresponsible. And I think that's a very sane and probably non-political way to look at it. But I don't necessarily think that Jim Lewis, who I will say I've been following for a very long time, and I think the quarantine has changed his personality in an amusing way. Yeah, no, as, and, has changed and, and, all of us. I, 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 I welcome the new tougher Jim Lewis. <laughs> right? It's I, I feel like he has changed his position. Now, I don't know if he feels that he has changed his position, but it's important to put in context this the piece that on the CSIS website is from a speech that he gave, and he gave it right after Dernsa gave his speech at the same conference. And I think you have to put it in historical perspective that we've changed our doctrine to look much more at persistent engagement and defend forward and a lot of those things as, as a sort of new way, a model of thinking about how this conflict is happening in the gray space, as they say. And so I'm definitely, I don't necessarily think that hacking the hackers is your best return on investment. I think that clearly if someone hacked Orange Psy, they got a great return on investment for that. Yes. Right? So it's not necessarily like, oh, let's directly go against Hafnium because that's sometimes that's your hardest target yeah. and your most risky. It sometimes is about going after the targets that they're going after, seeing them ahead of time. Like for, for us, it would be about getting forward positions in Ukraine, for example, or Georgia, places where they stage their proof of concept attacks before they use them against us. Yep. Right. So that's there's a lot to this. It's a multi day long conference to dive into the ramifications that some of these papers are proposing. I will say that I also I mean, I would also advocate for a, a renewed focus on some of our offensive countermeasures. And I think they don't necessarily have to happen against the intelligence organizations of a foreign country. But I think he's pointing out indictments have a very limited effect. Right. Like some of the sanctions have a limited some of the tools we have in our toolkit have run their course. Yeah. And we need to acknowledge that and adjust. And that's a simple message. Jamil? Yeah, no, I mean, I think Dana's exactly right. And I, I also want to welcome Jim to the fight on the offensive side, finally. I think it's really important. By the way, Dimitri's a supporter of getting more aggressive, too. And I'm not, I don't think the line he's drawn is bad, but I, would want, I want to note, right, that the Russians have the potential to escalate well beyond where they've gone, right? The, the access they obtain the depth of the access they have now today, and it remains sustained, by the way, uh, across these government agencies, we haven't got them out, can be used for more. They can threaten to do more and or actually do more. And I think at that point, we're talking about a very different line. So I tend to agree with Dimitri on where the lines are today. 
And look, the Chinese may have been cavalier in this space. And so that requires some more sort of pushing back and, and ensuring that the norms are assessed. But I think Dave is exactly right. We have got to get much more aggressive, right? And I know people don't like to talk about deterrence, but that's the reason deterrence works in cyberspace. We just don't practice it. We've never been willing to do what it takes, frankly. And yes, all these other tools, sanctions, blah, blah, right? You need to be operating across, the multi across multiple domains. The answer isn't only in cyberspace. Sometimes the answer is in cyberspace, and you've got to be able to talk about what your capability is and then deliver action on target. And this nonsense that the administration has been going through about, oh, we'll respond at a day and time of our choosing, and it may be behind closed doors. Well, guess what? That doesn't deter anyone other than probably even, even the actor that got engaged. Why? Because the best thing to do about a bully on the playground is not to go tell the teacher and, you know, and have their parents talk about it quietly behind closed doors. It's to punch the bully back in the face so everybody can seize it so they don't mess with you. And we got to be willing to do that. And until we're willing to do that, we're not going to get real deterrence. Do you think Microsoft could deter the Chinese by not selling exchange to China anymore? I mean, look, certainly, but I mean, I think that there's a big price to pay. Is Microsoft going to do that? I, I, that wouldn't mean that exchange wouldn't be running in China. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, to the contrary, we've seen actually across the board with all these companies, right? I mean, what I love about American companies, they love to be American companies when it helps them. But when it's hard for them, they have to comply with U.S. laws or the like, oh, well, we're international companies. We have to deal with everybody, <laughs> and it's a lot harder. But, you know, you never call – you don't call – the you know the Chinese MSS or the Iranian MOIS right when it comes to it comes to a problem you've got you call the NSA and DHS and well they don't call DHS FBI right um, you don't call you don't call the Chinese or the Russians or the Iranians but when it's convenient well we can't really help the U.S. government right, right we're, we're like Switzerland we're, we're Switzerland don't just or maybe Belgium <laughs> but we're neutral and and please stop uh, invading uh, France through us we're, we're, actually, <laughs> we're actually much more like India we're not aligned but when it matters we'll be on the team that helps us yeah oh, I was gonna say one thing I mean you know I think the I agree with everything that Dave and Jamil have said you know I think the the one thing that's important to take a step back and look at is we don't just have a cyber deterrence problem we have a Russia and China deterrence problem. There are a lot of things coming out of both of those countries that we have been unable to deter. And I think you know some more aggressive cyber approaches may be necessary, but they're not going to be sufficient. And we need to do more on a number of fronts. Maybe we should give up on the idea that there is one internet and as a, you know, see if saying, you know, we don't really want any packets from China and Russia anymore, or we're going to inspect them. They're going to go through a process. It'll be slower. I'm really sorry. You won't get Netflix as well from Moscow, but uh, we just, not that this will prevent them as VPNs. There's no, they're not going to be prevented from doing espionage, but it will slow them down and it'll be a penalty that the entire society pays. Uh, and, you know, China's already doing that to our packets going in. Why don't we do the same to their packets coming out? Well, it feels like, I mean, they've been using Rackspace and Amazon sites to hack us for other reasons. And I think this is what I think one of the very final Trump cyber executive orders was about, which was a know your customer order yep, for hosting yep. providers. And so I think it, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of reasons not to do that, obviously. But I think one of the reasons is the ineffectiveness of it. Right. So long term, we know that it's very difficult to set up a filtering mechanism that derives good from bad at the packet level coming from China. And, you know, what does that do to Tesla factories in China? Probably not great things. So politically, I don't know that that would go too well. Uh, 
But, but that's not to say people aren't looking at these problems and trying to come up with uh, creative solutions to give us the ability to look to control what's coming through and try to avoid some of the more egregious problems. I mean, All right, I, 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 I'll, ex egregious. I'll accept your your correction. Uh, although I think if we don't think about unthinkable resolutions, and if we only uh, accept solutions that Elon Musk will find profitable, we're not going to solve the problem. But <laughs> or Microsoft. I, I love that. I, I like the reality is we can't always just say public-private partnership is the answer. No. Right. Like, and that's. I think if you read the New York Times article that came out yesterday or the day before, they're like, oh, well, we're going to do some more public-private partnership. And I, everyone in the community was laughing because, you know, when have we not heard that? Yeah, gag, gag me with a public-private spoon. I want to turn to something that we tried to do uh, as a kind of expression of our refusal to trust Chinese technology. We tried to ban Xiaomi, not ban them, but to treat them as a, a military supplier, which now has actual legal consequences. The Defense Department, uh, usually these things are done by Treasury or the Commerce Department. In this case, it was DOD that was asked to identify companies that uh, are aligned with the Chinese military. They picked Xiaomi, which is a, uh, it's now currently the most popular manufacturer of mobile phones, in at least in China, and uh, very popular around the world. DOD said, yeah, they're militarily aligned. And uh, Xiaomi, which is becoming a very popular technique, God bless the the Chinese, they're keeping lawyers working through the pandemic. Uh, they went to court and kicked DOD's butt, Jamil. Yeah, no, I mean, look, the judge here roundly criticized DOD's approach, talking about the shaky foundations of a two-page memo. I will, you know, he also questioned their authority to act. They know, you know, that they didn't uh, cite their own authority to act under this particular provision of law. I do think, though, you know, that it, it is important when you think about these national security issues. Traditionally, courts have given a great deal of deference uh, to the executive branch in making national security assessments. And it's true that a lot of times those take place in the, in, you know, in the sort of the warfare domain and the intelligence collection domain. But let's be candid here, right? What is happening here? is no less a very real conflict, you know, in the international space between us and China and us and other nations um, over these issues. And I do think that courts ought to tread a little more carefully. You know, the standards are high to meet in granting an injunction. Nonetheless, the judge found that Xiaomi had met these standards, which are hard to get to in any event, and that, and that DOD had not done the right thing. But I didn't see a whole lot of deference in this opinion to the national security judgments that are exclusively held or at least traditionally held by courts to be in the executive branch. I didn't see that happen here. It's a lot of criticism, no, it, it, a lot of concerns. Don't you think there was a, there was some Trump derangement going on? This is an Obama appointee. And a, I, my guess is that there, he would have given more deference before the Trump administration, and he might give it if this is repeated to, uh, to the Biden administration. Well, I'm not going to cast aspersions about the judge or whether he was, you know, he was concerned about whether they, whether it was the Trump administration or the like, but I will say this, right, which is, he didn't seem to have a lot of truck for DOD's point of view. And the bottom line is that whether you like it or not, we tend to believe that the best people to decide what is the national security interest of the country and affiliations with the Chinese military or not, those are things that the intelligence community and the national security community make decisions about and assessments of the president ultimately. And judges generally don't look behind that. This judge looked deep behind it, didn't like what he saw, and made a decision on a very high standard Regardless of what caused it, right, I think that is probably 
not the thing to do. And I think that if on review, I think the judge is going to, I think the decision is going to face an uphill battle because the court of appeals is going to say, look, your standards for a preliminary injunction are very high. Yeah. In addition, you add on the national security pieces, you know, not clear that this was the right the right decision going forward that it'll survive appellate review if, in fact, DOD takes it up on appeal. I don't think the lawyers did a terrific job. I don't know if they didn't have time. That's possible. But the DOD did not do the kind of job that either the Commerce Department or the Treasury would have done here. So they were counting on more deference than they actually got from this judge. All right. Well, speaking of getting deference from the judge, Twitter has proposed that they can't even be investigated for anti-competitive behavior by a Republican because they've been so mean to Republicans. Is that a fair summary of Twitter's case, Nate? <laughs> not really. You know, we have the the honorable and objective Ken Paxton of Texas, who's, who's decided to take it upon himself to investigate what we don't really know yet. He's described it in a number of different ways. Sometimes it's the deplatforming of Parler. Other times it's the deplatforming of Donald Trump. And, you know, I think on the one hand, you see Paxton, and it's pretty clear that he and some in the conservative community see little downside in making these allegations, whether they stick or not. Well, don't you don't you think it, it clearly does look like there was a lot of coordination, uh, and that's an arguably anti-competitive be- act. They, 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 Paxton is proposing to investigate a lot of different Silicon Valley companies for the deplatforming that they undertook, uh, and. The argument that Twitter makes is, no, you can't even investigate to see whether there was something illegal here. And it's frankly not clear to me how Twitter fits into that deplatforming question. And this is where I think Paxton's got a little bit of his work cut out for him. He's going to have to articulate what this investigation is going after and how each of these companies is is involved in it allegedly and so you think they, not, that you think twitter wins this case i noticed that they brought the case even though they're being investigated in texas uh, they said yeah but we got the subpoena here in uh, northern california so we'd like the federal court in northern california to enjoin the texas attorney general do you think they're going to win this it, which is part of why I think it's a win-win for Paxton, because if they win, it's a it's a political victory for him <laughs> to have a California judge step in and try to invalidate this. I actually think at the end of the day, it's going to be tough for Twitter. You know, even under the standard they're proposing that the judge apply here, which is, you know, has three parts. They have to demonstrate that they're engaged in con- constitutionally protected activity arguably they can do that. You know, I I suspect Paxton will have some rebuttals there. The second thing they have to demonstrate is that these actions could chill their exercise of that activity. And that, you know, if they succeed on one, that one's pretty easy, I think. The, but the, the place they're going to have the most trouble is the third prong of this standard, which is to demonstrate that this protected activity was a su- substantial or motivating factor for the attorney general's conduct here. And I think, you know, to go back to what Jamil was just saying, he's going to be granted quite a bit of deference in making those determinations at the end of the day. And I think they'll give him some leeway. I think if he does succeed, you know, you'll probably see Twitter come back and and seek to narrow the subpoena in a variety of ways to 
to focus on, you know, things that the attorney general can actually substantiate and, and essentially make overbreath arguments and stuff like that. Um, Clearly, Paxton is at the leading edge of a trend, which is that uh, Republican states where it's there's no disadvantage to being a Republican electorally are going to start are going to give up on federal 230 reform and start doing a variety of measures aimed at bringing Silicon Valley to heel over their imposition of Silicon Valley values on on the rest of us. So that'll be a long fight. Florida's governor DeSantis has his own pretty clever efforts to get around 230 and the First Amendment. There are people who properly think he's got trouble on the First Amendment with some of his stuff, but he almost certainly will get some of this past the courts and start bringing at least transparency requirements on some of these speech suppression policies. So that'll be interesting. I, I want to move quickly through the, the next few stories uh, so we can get to Elliot Higgins. Nate, I... <laughs> This one, I have to say, there aren't a lot of things that leave me um, at a loss for words, but the European solution to the problem of the Court of Justice having imposed unrealistic standards for intelligence collection uh, does leave me astonished. Yeah. You know, as the Court of Justice has been putting the squeeze on U.S. intelligence agencies over the last, you know, nearly a decade now, the the European investigative authorities have largely been able to sit back and and watch with, you know, if not glee, at least, you know, glee in knowing that they're largely going to be exempt from a lot of this. That all came crashing down last fall when the court stepped in and asserted jurisdiction over certain aspects um, of their data retention laws and obligations, at least as far as it involves compelling private companies to to collect and and store data on their behalf. And you know, rather than accept that and accept the equal treatment under the law, they've gone to Europe and and sought an exemption from the court's jurisdiction in this area. Not you know, not but, one they that the U.S. will be able to take advantage of. But maybe I I actually think the people who think that the U.S. won't get an advantage out of this are not necessarily right. But this was designed to say when the the European Court of Justice. I said that we are subject to European law, at least when we deal with the private sector, it's wrong. And we're just wiping out those decisions. I I think it also sets a standard that will make it harder to say that the U.S. has to live to the higher standard in order to be comparable to European law. But we'll just have to see how that works. Uh, I, I, I worry that they'll be able to find a way to do that. But, and it, you know, it's important to note that this is not a done deal yet. You know, this has to be reconciled with other versions that have been adopted by other European institutions. And so they're going to enter negotiations on that front soon. And so you may see this altered or removed, but but there it won't be, you know, because of a lack of effort on on the part of their investigative authorities. All right. Uh, There was a great article about Unit 8200 in Israel in the rest of the world by Amos Barshad. Uh, It's not news. It's just a sort of detailed look at how 8200 has shaped the cybersecurity industry and turned Israel into a real powerhouse in cyber surveillance. I, I always thought the 8200, the whole branding of 8200 was very amusing to me. 
And I think the truth is much more complex. It's sort of like TAO in the States. People yeah. brand TAO as like this cyber superpower without understanding that a lot of what you see the States do and other countries do is trying to scale a capability up. Right. And so it's not necessarily about technical excellence. And I think what you're seeing in this article and many other articles is people complaining about NSO group and finding different angles to complain yes. about NSO group. And some of those angles are very funny. And, you know, they're like, well, NSO group gives too much capability to foreign countries that we are also selling like F-35s to. Right. Right. So I think some of those are very funny. And then some of them are, are sort of how do we find a way to exist in this world where there's a lot of capability in the hands of a lot of people and maybe they're doing things with that we didn't necessarily want. And some of that's just a matter. And I, I think the Israel, Israeli politics, even in Rick and Morty is known as sort of a galactic level hyper touchpad. Like don't, don't mess with the live wire. And you can tell I've been watching a lot of Rick and Morty lately <laughs> with my kids, but it's one of those things where if, the problem is not the company. The problem is that we haven't picked up the phone and asked the Israelis to please stop providing capabilities to people. And then they'd probably have some very hard questions for us back, right? So so you're going to see, and this is going to continue because, you know, Microsoft and Facebook are going whole hog on NSO Group and companies like it. They have, like, they're calling them mercenaries. And yeah, there's, there's and, and they're, they're suing them uh, on a variety of theories. Uh, yes, it's clear that uh, they just don't like the fact that a NSO group uh, is able to break their systems and is providing that capability domestically in the U.S. as, as well as to uh, people in the Persian Gulf. Yeah, and I, th this article it was occasionally snarky, but basically played it pretty straight and it certainly made 8200 sound like that they, they may just be a brand but it's a brand they've successfully sold inside yes. israel people go there i mean the israeli cybersecurity venture capital market is insanely huge for the size of i mean the whole thing fits in a tiny city right right like it's it's amazing and there are a lot of amazingly talented people coming out of you know israeli universities and 8200 and i've met many of them and nso group members have given a talk at a conference i used to run and it was a very good talk and they were very nice people and so i think it's sort of like these are problems that we need to address in a rational way that looks at the issue without what's best for microsoft and facebook being the primary driver of policy right like what does it really mean to have sovereign immunity is a good question. What, what does it mean when capabilities are more available? Because Egypt can develop its own capability. The Egyptian CERT developed the exchange. Or they can get it from China. Or they can get it from China. So some of this stuff is it really a lot of drum beating on an issue that is sort of meant to move the State Department in a particular direction. And I think it's best when we don't tie our vision of what cyber norms are totally to particular commercial interests. So here's I, I, the, the last area I want to cover because we have a tradition of covering, you know, this week in uh, sex toy security. And ESET had a great report <laughs> about vibrator security. And apparently, I who knew? I mean, I, I have to say, I, I'm not learning that much about cybersecurity, but I'm really learning a lot about sex toys. Who knew there were wearables? I, you know, oh, come on. Uh, well, you okay. knew there were wearables. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that's uh, all right. So I, I, it was a surprise to me. Maybe I, I, I'm just naive. I, uh, but apparently they use Bluetooth low energy and it's not that hard to get to do a man in the middle attack on somebody's wearable vibrator. I uh, and then intended, I assume. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, 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 I <laughs> go ahead. This is like the epitome of junk hacking, right? Like there's a bunch of junk in my garage that I'm sure I pull out and it's got like internet connectivity for no good reason or for a very good reason. And I'm sure I can hack it because they put $4.50 yeah. on whatever security platform they had. And this is just an example that's much funnier when you finally go through the effort Absolutely. to do it. Absolutely, it is. It is much funnier, and I, I, I kind of, I, when I tweeted this, I said, uh, I can imagine people trying to get the Bluetooth projector in the conference room working and and constantly getting the soundtrack from when Harry met Sally. You know, oh, I'll have what she's having. Uh, so, uh, it is. I guess we should just soberly and carefully say that you need to be an, an informed consumer and take great care about the cybersecurity of your personal devices. Well, I think let's just use it as a flag example of medical security in general. Yeah. And I think that's where you start seeing this have real life situations. When you look at diabetics monitoring and, and you know, they're injecting actual you know, insulin into their body via what's getting to be a much more sophisticated and interconnected system. And I think this is the future of a lot of things in the medical world. And we see that, of course, with chastity devices, too, which, you know, is a problem that's only solvable with a little tiny saw or something. I don't know. Yeah, I, no, I, I, I have posted a couple of links to the, the angle grinders that you have to use to remove them. And, uh, you know, it's just cringe inducing. Uh, all right. I listen, thanks to, to all of you guys. I do want to get to uh, poor Elliot uh, is listening to this discussion and saying, who did I sign up to be interviewed by? <laughs> so let's go to our interview with Elliot Higgins. Elliot, you're book is We Are Bellingcats. Great book. Uh, uh, but the organization is even uh, uh, better, to, to my mind. In fact, you've done some cool things since you finished the book. Uh, but uh, if you had to give a 30-second explanation of what Bellingcat is, what would you say? So we're a um, group of investigators who use online open source investigation to look at a whole range of different topics, everything from chemical weapons attacks in Syria um, to the downing of Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 in Ukraine. Okay. Uh, and where's, where did the name come from then? Um, it's uh, referring to an old fable about a group of mice who were very scared of a large, ferocious cat, and they come up with this idea of putting a bell on the neck of the cat, but then they realize they don't actually have a plan to do that, so we're teaching people how they bell the cat. Ah, okay, because yes, the, the, you, that story does not usually end well for the mice. So your, your, your theory is that uh, properly equipped, the mice can actually get a bell on the cat. Well, that's the hope. I mean, um, in our case, I mean, it might not end well for us, but we're trying. <laughs> so, yeah, well, well, we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. But I wanted to talk about some of the chapters in the book. You got started in an in an unusual way. Well, maybe there is no usual way. Uh, uh, but the f Bellingcat's first work was on the Syrian civil war and the chemical weapons that were being used to there. Um, how did you get? interested and how did you become expert in Syrian chemical weapons? 
Well, I'm, I'm basically entirely self-taught. When I started getting interested in this kind of field of investigation, it wasn't from any kind of professional perspective. It was basically just as someone who was spending a lot of time on the internet arguing with people over what was happening in the um, conflicts in Libya at the time. And it was really, you know, that moment with the Arab Spring where all of a sudden there were kind of live streams from kind of Tahrir Square in Cairo and Egypt of the this kind of battle mm -hmm. going on between police and protesters, footage coming from Libya of kind of Gaddafi kind of, you know, attacking protesters. And I was one of these people who was on the internet way too much, kind of arguing with people about these videos. And um, the one thing that came up a lot was, how do you know this is true? You know, how do you know this video is filmed where it claims to be filmed? And I thought, well, maybe I can figure that out. And I realized you could use satellite imagery to compare the details in those kind of videos and photographs, the buildings, the structures, the roads, to what you could see in satellite imagery and figure out exactly where they've been filmed. And um, that was a process we now call geolocation. But back when I was doing it, it was really just something I was doing almost for, for fun, just as part of these kind of debates online. Later on in early 2012, I decided to start a blog, really just as a way to kind of organize some of my ideas around this. I had no intention of it being anything more than just a place for me to kind of put stuff. But because I was really the only person at the time who was really looking at the videos coming from Syria every single day, I started to, to come across stuff no one else was seeing, like the first videos of cluster bomb use, the first videos of barrel bomb use, this improvised explosive device they were using a lot and has become notorious mm -hmm. for Syria. Then increasingly, um, other kinds of weaponry. I was looking very much at the weapons used by the rebels and in early 2013 I discovered videos of these new weapons the rebels were being uh, were being equipped with and um, working with the New York Times I managed to um, help them cover a secret uh, Saudi smuggling operation to the Syrian rebels all thanks to the fact they were basically showing videos of these new weapons on YouTube. And that just kind of started to kind of escalate and build my reputation on journalists and people working in NGOs and this whole kind of entire new field of online open source investigation, which really didn't exist before because there wasn't really the information available to kind of work in the way I was working. Suddenly it became this kind of huge thing and that eventually led to the launch of Balancat in 2014. So if there's any, you know, Bashar Assad clearly should have your name in his black book but if there's one world leader who really must hate you it's got to be vladimir putin um uh, you've you've done more to embarrass him and his regime than just about anybody yet uh, uh and how did you end up with so many um russian investigations it was kind of actually part of the natural evolution of this kind of field of online open source investigation because initially most people who were getting into it were kind of amateurs or kind of people working for bigger organizations who um, were kind of almost doing it as a hobby, like a sideline to their real job. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first focus was Syria because there was so much content coming from Syria, videos and photographs. And then in 2014, just after Bellingcat was launched, Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 was shot down over eastern Ukraine. And that was um, just acted as a massive catalyst 
for the entire kind of community. It brought more people into it. It got people more involved. And Bellingcat became kind of like a central node around that because, because we were pretty much the only website doing that sort of investigation. Um, and that obviously brought us in contact with Russia a lot. And as that investigation kind of progressed, we discovered more information, not only about MH17, but Russia's involvement with the conflict in Ukraine, which we also exposed. You know, soldiers who were taking uh, you know their tanks over on holiday, as Russia would say, to Ukraine, um, you know, cross-border artillery strikes, all this information that Russia was saying, we're not involved with Ukraine. It's a local thing, but it was clear Russia was involved. Then in 2015, they started bombing Syria. So when that happened, the kind of two communities came together. And then that just, you know, we kept doing Russia stuff, more and more Russia stuff. I and mean, we don't do it exclusively, but I think our biggest stories have always had kind of a Russia focus. I think part of it is uh, both regimes depend on on just flat lies that uh, to, they, they believe they can sell flat lies about what's happening uh, in territory that they control. Um, and that's, um, if you depend on that, you start to get lazy. And then in a world where there's a lot of data, sooner or later, you get tripped up. And you see this with Russia a lot. I mean, what's always really shocked me about Russia is how bad they are at lying and how they get away with it. And it's basically down to them just lying so much that it, people feel it's impossible to kind of keep up. Um, like from 2013 with the chemical attacks in Syria, Russia lied about them. But what's interesting for me is the lies they were using were basically recycling theories that were coming from the internet. It wasn't original lies, they were just stealing lies from online communities. And you saw that happen again in 2014 with MH17. The, just a few days after MH17 was shot down, the Russian Ministry of Defense gave this big press conference, uh, hour long, giving their evidence. And every single piece of that evidence was false. And we proved it was false. But what, again, was interesting for me was that some of those claims came directly from internet forums. They literally just copied them and shared them in a big high profile press conference, about 298 people being murdered, that they had found something on the internet and they were just recycling it like it was their own idea. And this happened with the scripple poisoning and just it just happens continually. And I think what uh, the reason we really annoy Russia is because we systematically just pick their lies apart at the very highest levels of their government and just show how they're just you know completely full of it. So the scripple poisoning, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, is a great example of how just a, from their point of view, from, from Russia's point of view, the foolishness of providing even a few true facts is what blew the case for them. Uh, uh, they actually uh, had a couple of people who'd been accused of uh, uh, being the poisoners. Uh, they put them on TV and, and, and they said, no, no, we went to Salisbury to, to look at the cathedral. Yeah, there's a, there's a cathedral there. Um, a, and you started with the, that bit of um, uh, uh, film, plus some records that you uh, were able to purchase on what I think is probably either the black market or the gray market about travel, and began to really break down the entire organization of uh, um, Putin's assassination gang. Yeah, so um, when the Scripple assassination first happened, we didn't really have anything to go on as investigators. But when the UK authorities released the names and photographs of the suspects, we, we didn't have 
quite enough, but then a Russian news site actually got the flight manifest for the flight they flew into England on, and that had their passport, their, their date of births, and their passport numbers were only a few digits apart, which was very suspicious. And uh, one of my colleagues, Christo Grozev, he, his kind of hobby is um, looking to Russian spies. He just, he's become really good at it as well. So, and he knows in Russia that there's a massive amount of leaked information. Basically, you have leaked databases from the government that have been floating around on the internet, sold at like Russian markets for ages, and he's been collecting them. So he's got like Russia's house registration database from, you know, Moscow 2012 and 2013, like loads of these databases. You can also buy live information from Russian kind of government databases because you just find people online selling it. It's like this huge market. Most people will buy it for, say, you know, they want to commit fraud or they want to find out, get phone records of their husband to find if they've been cheating on them, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But we used it in a very different way. So first of all, um, we knew from a previous attempt at, at coup in Montenegro a few years earlier where a GRU officer had been arrested. They, uh, he, he was arrested with two IDs. Uh, one for his fake persona, one for his real one. And the fake pers persona had the same first name, date of birth and place of birth as the real ID. Because so, it's easier to remember, presumably. Yeah, if you're getting drunk and you, you know, have had a bit too much vodka, you can remember your first name, which is always, always handy if you're a spy. So um, Christo looked them up, first of all, on the databases he had and realized they only appeared in 2013. Beforehand, they didn't exist whatsoever. So that was suspicious. Then um, we got their passport registration documents from one of these online kind of brokers. And um, that revealed that they had very unusual passport for, uh, um, registration forms, like um, it had the phone number of the Russian Minister of Defense stamped on it, saying, call this number if you see this document. And like <laughs> loads of information was missing. So that was suspicious. But we knew that as they were giving the interview on Russia Today, we just got that information. So the following day, we could actually published about all this kind of shady stuff that was yep. you know, around them. Then we were then able to um, reconstruct their real identity of those few pieces of information. Because if you search for all the databases for people with the same first name, date of birth and place of birth, you only get about oh, 10 you're, results. There aren't that many people, that's right. Yeah. yeah, so then you just figure out which ones are online and have online profiles. And then we ended up, I think, with like two or three who didn't. And we got their real identity documents from again the same data brokers and it had their photographs on it and that allowed us to show categorically that these guys were working for the GRU not least because they registered a real address at the GRU dormitories and headquarters which made it a bit easier for us to do that but we could find their kind of training and information like that online and that just blew the whole thing open we showed they were from uh, you know this unit 29155 they'd been involved with another assassination attempt in Bulgaria a few years earlier of an, an arms dealer who was there that eventually led us to the um, Russia's secret chemical weapons program because they've been phoning up the scientists who work there and worked specifically on the Novichok program that was supposedly shut down, but was still you know yeah. moved somewhere else. And um, we basically discovered that whole secret chemical weapons program. So when Navalny was poisoned, we looked up those guys, those scientists' phone records and found them calling the FSB team that was targeting Navalny. God, and and uh, and then if I remember, uh, you you started getting travel records that showed that these guys were traveling around with Navalny. Uh, figured out um, which ones were in, uh, a part of the uh, the hardcore team, and then got Navalny to call one of them up and pretend to be his boss's boss and start reaming him out about some problems with the uh, attack on Navalny, like it didn't kill him, uh, and got the guy basically to admit uh, to uh, the whole plan. 
Yeah, it was um, pretty incredible. I mean, we were, we were lucky we set the whole thing up with a free camera setup, so it's like really well filmed as well. And you see my <laughs> colleague Christo just freaking out in the background, and Navalny's kind of uh, um, journalist he, he works with just like hand over her mouth. Um, but yeah, I mean, Navalny basically, one thing we did, we, we spoofed the phone number of the FSB. So when he got his caller ID, it was the FSB. So nice. when Navalny started talking, he started saying, I'm working with this person, I'm, you know, I'm his assistant. I need a, I urgently need a report from you on what happened on this day because I've been able to do this. And the guy was going, oh, I'm not sure. And he said, no, I'm telling you, we have to, he bullied him. Of course, well, that was, when you're dealing with Russians, sooner or later, you got to get out the whip. <laughs> yeah, so he, and then he was like, Navalny was like saying, oh, can you give me an assessment of each of the people involved with it? And he was reading out the names we had identified from our investigation. Yeah. And this guy was basically confirming they were involved with the assassination by giving them a, like the reference and it was like and he said okay why do you think it went wrong and he was like giving it he was giving like a full status report on every aspect of the assassination it was a 50 minute phone call it wasn't like oh it's a quick thing it was like God. a long chat and it was all filmed and all published online and we actually timed that because on the previous monday we had released our article and we had actually done that phone call then but we held on to the phone call because we knew putin would be giving his yearly press conference on friday uh -huh. yeah. and he was asked the question well about this Navalny thing and we thought oh he just deny it but he actually said of course he's being followed by the FSB because he's you know a threat to Russia but if we were going to kill him we would have succeeded ah. and then on Monday we released a oh. video of this guy saying oh well, well I think it went wrong and oh we put the poisoning on the underpants and you know all the, all the details that um just Putin had confirmed half the story that it was being followed and this guy had confirmed the other half that he'd been targeted for poisoning it it it, it was it was hilarious uh one of the things I'm struck I'm struck by you, you you've started you know because you can identify these guys you can identify a whole bunch of other people who fit the same pattern or have phone calls with them or gave the same address uh, when they registered their car um, so you've now got a, a pretty deep uh, uh, set of uh, materials on who the worst actors in uh, uh, the uh, in, in the FSB are uh, and you've started reconstructing other deaths that uh, look as though they were part of the poison squad's activities. Um, nobody else used Novichuk, though, did they? Apart from Skripal and Navalny. We're, we're not too sure because we know, um, I think we're now up to, um, we've had three successful, well, three people who have died mysteriously after being followed by the same FSB team, um, two of whom had puncture marks in their armpits. So. We don't know if that was Novichok or some other agent, but they basically disappeared and then turned up, you know, officially with heart attacks, but with these puncture marks and stuff. So um, we also then have Vladimir Karamurza, who was a um, Russian opposition figure. He was very close with Boris Nemstov. He, um, you know, he, he uh, went to the US to talk about the Magnitsky Sanctions Act mm -hmm. and those kind of things. And he fell into a coma in 2015 and again in 2017. And we have more of a feeling that might be Novichok. Interesting there, though, um, I mean, the FSB, FSB took sam uh, not the FSB the FBI very different organizations <laughs> took samples from the um from him when he was in the US because he was flown to the US in a coma and they've never released the results of those samples so there's been a kind of real question about what was actually in those samples I'm I'm hoping now with the new Biden administration because that was during the Trump administration oh, there yeah. might be some reason to we might be able to find out what this these substances were 
actually were. Um, but even th with those, you know, additional attempts beyond Navalny, we've still got four or five we're still investigating that seem to be, again, the same pattern of people being followed and then falling mysteriously ill. And these aren't just political figures, but they're political, they're figures from all kind of walks of life in Russia. There's people who are, you know, critical of Putin, but in a non, you know, outside of politics, there's people who work for certain agencies who are going to say the wrong thing and then right. they died mysteriously. And it, it's... And, and this is, or I think, just the tip of the iceberg, because the more we kind of dig, the more we're finding. And it's really quite disturbing that in Russia, there is clearly a domestic assassination program targeting a range of different people from really major opposition figures to really minor critics and activists. That was what struck me, is that, is that these were not exactly uh, uh, nationally known or even regionally known uh, dissenters. They, they just must have gotten under somebody's skin. Yeah, and you kind of wonder how low the bar is to be assassinated by this team. And because they seem very, very active. I mean, they're traveling all the time and it's hard to... And we were kind of looking for the big kind of names initially, you know, the people who fell ill and that everyone knew about. But we shared actually um, with our community, basically our data set of this, these travels and asked if anyone knew, could spot any kind of overlaps between travels and people getting ill. And then these kind of really obscure figures started coming up that we had never heard of before and, you know, were barely reported in the local press. And it, it's quite, um, I mean, for me, it was really generally shocking because it's one thing to, you know, target a kind of an ex-spy or you know really popular opposition leader but these are just fairly normal activists i mean they're probably you know at the same level as you or high i mean it's, it's yeah. we're not the, like the biggest names in the world but you know these are, we'd be the kind of people that putin would kill in russia if we were saying bad things about putin so i you talked a little bit about the uh uk authorities releasing some information about the um the script uh poisoners but they didn't release it all. They didn't provide, if I remember, passport numbers. Um, and that raises the question, is there a way in which the investigators, especially in the West, uh, could do a better job of enabling uh, this kind of crowdsourced investigation? I mean, I think the first question is whether they really want us to be doing it. I, I don't think they're too mad at us, but I, you, you, I, I really? guess they kind of have to make a decision. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to tell, but it would be useful. I mean, when we've done kind of other work in different areas, like chemical weapons attacks in Syria, I've engaged with people at the OPCW and I've said to them, you know, it, it's useful when you release a bit more information, even if it's just like if you have a table of munition fragments you've examined, right. include photographs of munition fragments because they've and they started actually doing that later on. I don't know if it was directly because of me or just a general understanding of kind of online open source investigation and how we use that. But that was massively useful, even though it was a few additional photographs. In that case, it allowed us to establish that a specific type of chemical bomb used by the Syrians had been used in a, a sound attack that happened before the well-known Khan Sheikhoun 2017 attack. So, so if, they, just, if they can't do, I mean, it's pretty clear they, for a variety of reasons, including uh, uh, manpower, they can't do the same job that you can do. Uh, they just don't have the concentrated attention span, um, uh, the willingness to look at a lot of stuff that may not pay off. Uh, but boy, you would think that they would be looking for circumstances where releasing the data uh, is useful to a bunch of people who are pursuing the same investigation the government is pursuing. 
Not only that, but I think in the case of the Scripples, it would have been useful if they'd released those passport numbers for the yeah. kind of information war that was going on. Because Russia was saying, well, you know, these are just two guys who visited Salisbury to see the cathedral. Yet if the UK authorities had released their passport numbers and everyone had seen they were only like five numbers apart, I think a lot of people would have gone, that's a bit of a weird coincidence that two friends are just have the same passport numbers. And it's not like that's a, that was such a, a, a secret source or method. Uh, uh, you provide your passport number when you cross the border so they yeah. uh, there was nothing classified about that they just didn't do it yeah and it's um sometimes the situation feels like it's improving in different areas I and mean, we work in such a range of different areas and fields that um there has been a growing understanding of what open source investigation can do not just for investigating these kind of assassinations but work we've been doing with the international criminal court and other bodies as well and i i think there's more of a idea now that if you're using sources that are publicly available and there's no danger to the people you'll be who, who's created those sources like for example a witness on the ground filming an airstrike right. then you should share it because then it gives other people the ability to investigate it and for Bellingcat, that was always at the kind of center of the way i was working because i i came from an amateur background i had no reason for anyone to believe me whatsoever so you had so to prove I had to be, what you were doing yeah, so I had to use transparent sources, transparent methodologies, and that then became almost the core of what Bellingcat became. You know, we are transparent about our sources and methodologies. Even when we use these um, phone records, for example, we got from these sources, we explained how we did it in a very detailed post on the website. And that actually resulted in Russian journalists using the same data to confirm our findings because <laughs> right. of course russia was saying oh this has all come from mi6 but then right. russian journalists got it and said no i've just brought it from this guy on the internet it's exactly the same information bellingcat's using so it it really also undermines those who are trying to attack you by saying you're getting these from kind of secret sources when you know people can just do exactly what you've done so nobody nobody feels bad for uh, uh putin's assassination gang when they get doxxed like this uh, uh but the the idea of uh, sort of crowdsourcing justice and inve investigations has a different feel now than it did during Arab Spring. That uh, there's a lot of Twitter mobbing and cancel culture and destruction of people's lives because they said or did something that uh, half the country disagrees with. Uh, I, how do you distinguish between what Ballingcat does and just ordinary uh, 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 politically motivated doxing? Well, a good example of this is um, we've been doing work on the January 6th uh, violence in Washington, D.C., and we, we crowdsource basically videos from there. But one thing we said repeatedly is we don't want to identify people. It's not our job to identify people. And if you crowdsource that, it almost inevitably goes wrong. And it has gone mm -hmm. wrong with that because there have been people misidentified. Um, and that, you know, going back to things like the Boston um, Marathon bombing Reddit investigation, in a way, when you're crowdsourcing stuff, you can, ha it works well. If you've got a lot of people, but it's a very simple task, it works really well. So an example of that is we've been uh, amplifying the Europol Trace and Object Stop Child Abuse campaign, where they've basically cut objects from child abuse objects imagery like uh, a bottle of shampoo or an item of clothing or maybe a background and they've asked people to identify them and by sharing it with our network that you know we have you know 350 followers on thousand followers on twitter they 
are asked a very simple question, what is this object? And they can respond, and that's great. If you then ask them to, you know, who is this person from January 6th, then you get this kind of hive mind kind of mentality going on. They reinforce each other's mistakes. That's where it goes horribly wrong. If it's a complicated investigation, you want a few people doing it. If it's simple, then as many people as possible can be involved. And it's understanding that kind of dynamic that is, you know, useful when you're doing investigations and you're using that kind of community for it. Yep. So I... Um... I, I can't help asking because this is a cybersecurity uh, kind of question. There's a whole bunch of files that just came out by somebody who basically doxed a lot of cybercrime forums. Uh, so that there's now a lot of evidence that would allow you to track back people when they were less security conscious uh, and maybe uh, tie them to, uh, you know, a vcontact uh, 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 accounts or uh, uh, IQ, ICQ accounts, um, and they're, thereby actually find out the real identities behind some cybercrime uh, um, uh, uh, monikers. Uh, have you guys gotten into the task of trying to figure out who's behind ransomware gangs or other kinds of uh, Eastern European crime? Um, not really in those kind of cases. I mean, we did, um, when the iMarch forums leaked, this far-right forum, we kind of worked through the data there and worked with some people to identify kind of these far-right individuals who are serving in kind of the US military and, you know, in the police and that kind of place. So we've kind of worked on those kind of links, but we've... I mean, unfortunately, we're so busy with Russian assassinations. It's like, we've, it's <laughs> it's like okay, throw up don't the apologize. That, that, <laughs> yeah, that would take like... priority. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, here's a question about those uh, uh, the assassination gangs. Uh, apart from going to Skripal and going to the UK, do your records show them leaving Russia? Uh, not since um, they've we've identified them. I mean, they how, seem. How to about have got... other those the other players that you were able to identify by their uh, driver's registration uh, uh, addresses. It, it uh, seems to have certainly curtailed their activity. And we, we actually had a big ethical discussion about using this kind of data. And part of the discussion was, well, if we reveal this, then it's going to stop assassins being able to travel abroad and murder people. So ethically speaking, if we don't do it, then we're in a way right. allowing that to happen. So um, yeah, I mean, it does seem to have actually curtailed their activities for the moment. But um, I mean, this squad that was working in the FSB, for example, doing the domestic assassinations, they've been operating for years on a very frequent basis. It wasn't just one-off operations here or there. They were like onto one job after another, going around Russia, following people. So um, I don't think Russia's just going to give up. I'm sure they're already training the next, next batch of FSB assassins who aren't going to be as dumb with their mobile phones and, you know, are going to be a bit more careful. That's the problem is that none of this is really repeatable over the long run. Everybody can get smarter on these things. Uh, they're already, I think you said in the book, using burner phones uh, uh, and, and their, their phone records are not going to be as useful. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, th this constant changes. I think the main thing that has, that has to be, though, is, you know, we're feeling this massive amount of information about these assassinations. And you have to understand that Russia, you know, the Russian government and officials genuinely believe that Bellingcat is part of the intelligence services. They think we're either CIA or MI6 or MI5. So when we're publishing them this stuff, they aren't seeing this as Bellingcat, the kind of newsy website doing it. They're seeing it as Bellingcat, the arm of MI6 is revealing our Russian assassinations. Ah, so and this is MI6 handing you all the information so that you can embarrass them. Yeah, it's so sort of like, a, sort of like Panama Papers. 
Yeah, and then they look at the Russian, the um, kind of Western response to this, and they see a few sanctions and a few people being, you know, diplomats being kicked out of the country. And then actually, the West must be okay with this because they aren't really doing anything that bothers us. I mean, getting rid yeah. of diplomats and sanctions in Russia, that is part of the price they're willing to pay for this. So if they aren't paying a price that's beyond what they're willing to pay and they this stuff's out in the open then they're just going to keep on doing it why would they stop if they can assassinate you know they can try and assassinate the you know biggest political leaders in the opposition in russia and have no real blowback in it if they can go around europe trying to assassinate people and have no real blowback then they'll just keep yeah. on doing it yeah so, so you know i this is this is this is this is harsh but uh in the depths of the Cold War, if somebody had traded a spy to, to the U.S. Uh, for one of theirs and then gone back and killed the one that they released, uh, I think the U.S. would have gone and killed the, the, the person that uh, uh, they had released uh, uh, as a way of saying, you know, that's just the price you pay. If that's the game that you're playing, we'll have to play it too. Because um, that's the only lesson that I think the Russians would really honor. We're not going to do that, probably. Uh, um, but uh, I, this is this is a deeply troubling, especially using Novichok, which is just basically advertises itself. Uh, uh, so it's it's as though they really want us to know that they're killing these guys. I, I, the thing is, I have kind of an alternative theory on that because we, of course, we know about the poisonings that have been revealed in the press, like Scripple, for example. Mm -hmm. But what we discovered in our research was there was all these assassinations happening that no one knew about, and they were That's using true. nerve agents. So it could be that they've just got used to using it because it's what they get away with. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing: when they get away with stuff, they keep doing it again and again and again, and then they get caught and suddenly it's this kind of huge thing about this particular substance but you know keep in mind i mean we we worked on the um berlin bicycle assassination murder where there was this person who rode up to a uh a chechen um former terrorist and you know current dissident and shot him in the head and rode off we identified as him as working for the fsb and you know they're happy to use bullets as well as chemical weapons to murder okay people. so <laughs> it's it's right. it but it's this case i mean like with those murders as well i mean i didn't really touch on those but you know it seems pretty clear that there is a squad of the fsb that goes around the world killing these you know former Chechen rebels um quite systematically i mean this they from yeah. what i understand they sent a list of uh, these names to european partners and said we would like these people sent back to russia and most of them refused and now this list is slowly being kind of crossed off one by one of all these different people in different countries so the scale of this i think is quite um you know, it would really shock most people when they realize that the, this isn't just one or two things these are multiple assassinations going over a series of years in russia and across the world Elliot, this is a great book. We are Bellingcat. Uh, I I, I want to uh, uh, yell at you. I tried to to, to uh, make a donation to Bellingcat, uh, uh, and it, it happens that I have to get a five hundred one c three notification in order to do that. Uh, and uh, I went through uh, and could not find your um, nonprofit status. Do you have a nonprofit status in the U.S. And how well, do people give you money? We don't yet. We, we are looking at getting it, though, because we are currently a non-profit in the Netherlands and we kind of uh, have registered charity there. So we, in Europe, it's fine. But we are working on doing that. It's, the thing is, Bellingcat has basically doubled in size since I launched it every single year. And the last two years has just been this really crazy expansion period since we've done the scriffle poisoning. So we've been doing a lot to turn Bellingcat into a much more professional organization than the kind of amateur blog we were 
you know, several years ago when I launched. I mean, it's a good position to be in. So yeah, know, yeah. No, hey, wait, what were you doing before when when you were just doing this as a hobby? I was working in um, admin roles. I, I first I was working for a company that was housing refugees, and I was dealing with all the housing uh, issues there. <laughs> And then um, I was actually working for a few months before I started doing this and a company that made uh, lingerie. And uh, I was doing all the orders for it. But of course, now I'm Russia today. I'm the kind of lingerie salesman who, you know. <laughs> which, you know, if you want to say it's lingerie salesman taking on Putin, I mean, that's... Uh, I, 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 I think it, 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 it suggests something bad about Putin that, that, that yeah. somebody they think of as a lingerie salesman is kicking his butt. Uh, so uh, we can send you stuff on Patreon and the like. Uh, oh, yeah, we've got Patreon tax deductible uh, uh, yeah. in the U.S. Uh, um, Elliot, it's uh, it's terrific. I, I I admire your ingenuity, your enthusiasm, the targets you've picked, uh, and the responsibility you've shown. Because this is the kind of thing that can easily turn bad, uh, and you've managed to uh, to navigate that remarkably well. Thank you. Thanks to. Elliot, thanks also to Nate, to Dave, to Jamil, uh, and uh, for our listeners, uh, if you've got any suggestions, just send us uh, uh, notes at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Thanks to Weissman Sound Design for the music. This has been episode 353 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. 